Welcome to the Dwelling Place Church audio podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's message. We pray God speaks to you today through this message and through his word. For more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. Now, it's time to listen to this week's message. If you have a Bible, go with me to 1 Samuel chapter 16. 1 Samuel chapter 16 is where we're going to begin in just a few moments. Thank you for those that are streaming live with us as well today. I read a book last year by Stephen Ambrose. It was called Undaunted Courage, and it's about the Lewis and Clark expedition and, um, of the early 1800s. And I know you're familiar with this. They had set out to find what they thought was one contiguous waterway that connected the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans. And so as they took off from the east, they thought they would be on a waterway that would take them all the way to the Pacific Ocean. Well, for two years, these two men, they battled through hunger, and they battled through fatigue, and they battled through enemies, and they battled through desertion. And all the information that they had received up to this point was that, that they made them believe that once they reached the Continental Divide, there in the, beyond the Midwest, they would reach the Continental Divide, they would face only a half-day's walk down to the Columbia River, at which point they would lazily float downriver all the way to the Pacific Ocean. Well, the story goes that as these two men were approaching the Continental Divide, um, one of them, Meriwether Lewis, gets really, really excited because he's ready to lay his eyes on the Pacific Ocean, and he takes off sprinting up to the Continental Divide. He gets out in front of Lewis, and uh, excuse me, um, 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 the Clark, and he takes off running and gets up to the top of this place, expecting for the first time to get a glimpse of the other side, and he became the first in that moment non-Native American to lay his eyes on the Rocky Mountains. Now imagine how that felt. Stephen Ambrose, he shows how, how somehow Lewis and Clark, even in the midst of the setbacks, were able to deal with the disappointments and the challenges, and they kept pressing on. And because of that, on November 5th, 1805, Lewis and Clark put their feet into the Pacific Ocean, and they turned around and went all the way back east. Now here's the question I want us to consider this morning. Where do you feel like that in your life? Has your marriage just gone through a rocky mountain moment? Has your job become a rocky mountain moment? Is in your relationship with your children a rocky mountain moment? Maybe it's a bad health report that came out of nowhere and it feels like a rocky mountain moment. Maybe it's an unexpected delay in a situation that feels like a Rocky Mountain moment. Maybe it's God operating so faithfully to rescue and redeem those around you. And all of a sudden, maybe even your own family, God seemingly has put the pause button. And it's delayed. It feels like a Rocky Mountain moment. What if it's a problem maybe suddenly with your kids that feels like a Rocky Mountain moment? What I want you to know today, church, is that God has a special way of preparing His people. And these kinds of things, these Rocky Mountain moments, are always part of His plan. I know you, like me, we, we want an easy downriver waterway into eternity, but God instead saves us and sends us into the Rocky Mountains. We want to go downriver, downstream so easily, so flippantly at times, yet God sends us into the Continental Divide. And let's just be honest, let's tell the Lord, that frustrates us. That frustrates me. It makes me mad sometimes. It challenges me sometimes. But let me tell you something, God sees those things totally different from the way we sing them. Like hardships and mountains are not problems to him at all. He could literally fling them to the side at any moment. Listen, church, his biggest objective in this journey is not to get you to a destination, but to prepare you for that destination. 
In fact, it took 70 years for the children of Israel to go 40, 40, or excuse me, 40 years to go 70 miles, which should tell us from the outset that God cares more about who we are when we get there than when we get there. That God's objective is about transforming us in these rocky mountain moments. See, I've often said before, I'll say again, God is not just trying to put you into heaven. He's trying to put heaven and his heart into you. So what he does is he uses moments like this. So we're going to go to 1 Samuel 16 and we're going to read about no, no human being is named more often in the Old Testament than David. In fact, if you add up Abraham, uh, Moses, Abraham, and Jacob, you do not get as much text devoted to it as you do David. Now David, for many of us, maybe you're unaware, he united the 12 tribes of Israel. The 12 tribes of Israel were, were diaspora. They were spread about in all different places. He forged them into a nation. David goes into Jerusalem, captures it from the foreign kings. He makes Jerusalem what we call the religious and political ground zero for the Hebrew faith. David did all of this. David united Israel. David's story, by the way, is the longest and fullest account of an individual's life in all of the scripture. We have more texts written to his entire life than anyone else. From the time of his youth, which is 1 Samuel 16 and 17, all the way to the time of his throne, 1 Samuel 18 through first, no, 2 Samuel 5, the various triumphs and defeats that he has as a king from 2 Samuel 6 to 2 Samuel 24, all the way into 1 Kings 1 and 2 in his death. We literally have three historical books devoted to the context of David's life. So I started thinking this way. Okay, this is going to be hard. How do you preach on David, right? Well, the end of the, the cycle of Judges, which is Samson, you'll hear about next week. I started thinking, what story do I pick? And it, it became very apparent to me. David, more than anyone in Scripture, speaks to our lifetime experience of faith. That is to say, we can meet David in any season of life in ways that minister to where we are. This, this is addressing his entire life cycle. So let me catch you up on the bigger story before we read 1 Samuel 16 and 6. After the terrible downward cycle of the judges, Israel decided what they needed was a king. And so they say to God, we want a king. And God said, I was supposed to be your king. I was supposed to be your king, right? I, I want to be your king. And they, no, we want a king that we can see and touch and feel and lead us into battle. This is a man of war. We want a man of war to lead us into battle. And God says, okay, you're going to end up regretting that, but I'll relent. I'll let you have what you want. You're going to end up regretting it. And so God allows him to have a king. Well, what happens? He told a prophet named Samuel. Samuel was the most important prophet in Israel. He said, Samuel, here's what you can do. The whole nation wants a king. So what I want you to do is I want you to go and choose a king. So Samuel goes down and chooses a man named Saul. Now, I call him Psycho Saul, but he wasn't psycho at the beginning of his tenure. He gets a little bit psycho as it goes. He finds Saul, and Saul was a perfect match. He was an obvious choice. He was tall. He was charismatic. He was good looking. He was a great warrior. He was smart. He looked like Tim Simmons. I mean, he was an amazing amazing, amazing man. No one was surprised. He could have gotten a full-ride scholarship to any football program in the SEC. He was the man. And to be honest with you, he started out pretty good. But he turned out to be like most other kings where pride, uh, power that he received from the nation corrupted his heart. He became proud. He became self-willed. He used his position of power to serve himself rather than the people God called him to lead. He used and abused people and he bended the laws of God whenever it served him. So God said, Beep, I reject you, Saul. And God rejects him. God rejects Saul. He says, I want you, Samuel, to go look for a new king. So, as we saw two weeks ago in Ruth, God sent Samuel to the house of Jesse to anoint the new king. Jesse is the grandson of Ruth the Moabite. 
Ruth the Moabite had a grandson named Jesse, and so now Jesse is there. So Jesse answered the door, knock, knock, knock. Samuel says, hey, God told me one of your sons is supposed to be a king. That's a, that's a great day, isn't it? One of your sons is supposed to be a king. And so Jesse says, woo, woo, I know exactly which one of my sons has been born to be a king. It's Eliab. And so he calls for Eliab, and Eliab comes walking up in to the living room. Verse 6, and when they came, Samuel looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. Remember, Eliab looked tall, kingly, commanding presence, blue still eyes. I know you want to see a picture of Brad Pitt here, but I'm going to hold, okay? Verse 7, but the Lord said to Samuel, notice this, do not look on his appearance or the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees, but man looks at the outward appearance and God looks at the heart. Now listen, y'all, Samuel should have known better. Come on, Samuel. Do you not, how many souls you got to have before you realize the person who looks good ain't good? That God doesn't use the most qualified outwardly. I mean, like, how many times do you need to learn this lesson, Samuel? Like, it's not going to be Eliab. God's going to reject Eliab. Like, you're going to choose Eliab because he looks kingly? If you trace the story of Eliab, by the way, he becomes a person that turns out to be very critical, arrogant, and untrusting of God. So God says to, Ab- uh, God says to David, I'm lo- or God says to Samuel, the prophet, I'm looking for a totally different kind of king. I'm looking for somebody different. God says, I want somebody different. Listen to me, leaders. When, when God looks for leaders, he doesn't typically look at what we look at. When God looks for leaders, he doesn't typically value what we value. He's not after the pretty one. He's not after, he never looks at someone and says, Woo, wow, great dresser, man. <laughs> He's going to be a leader. Oh, impressive resume. Never knew he did all of that or never knows she did. Oh, nice stature, nice body, nice body. God never does that. He looks at the beauty here and here alone. God looks at what's residing in here. So let me ask you before we move on. This is kind of an introductory question to the message. How much time do you spend on preparing the beauty of this? How much time? How much time do you spend on preparing the beauty of this? See, some of us spend so much time obsessing about what we look like on the outside. Working out, dressing correctly, saying the right things. In fact, a lot of you spent a significant amount of time this morning getting that part ready. That outside part, but did you come this morning with this part ready? Did, what did you do on Saturday night? Did you get this part ready to come hungry and to not leave until you're full? To worship, to pray, to engage, to get this part. Because he, God looks at purity, humility, compassion. He looks at people who are, are quick to ask for forgiveness. He looks at people who are quick to forgive others. Well, like I said, Samuel should have known this, but even the best prophets forget things sometimes. So God says to Samuel, nope, not Eliab. And so Samuel says to a surprise Jesse, well, God has not chosen Eliab. Do you have another son? Verse 10. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these either. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? Now that seems like kind of like a dumb question to me. Are all your sons here? And Jesse's like, uh, one, two, three. Oh, yeah, yeah. I actually got another one out there, but he's a runt boy. He's out in the pasture, and uh, we, we don't have time to go get him. He's certainly not a king, and if we do, he'll trap uh, attract uh, sheep dung all in the house on the carpet. So let's just leave him out there. And Jesse, at this moment, says, oh, wow, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he's keeping the sheep. I looked up the word youngest in Hebrew. It's the word hakaton, which... Hebrew scholars say carries the connotation of runt. He was wimpy and skinny. David was the kind of kid that had to run around in the shower to get wet. 
I mean, he was, he was skinny. He was a runt. And he's keeping the sheep, which is the lowest job in Israel. It's the equivalent of like cleaning toilets. Look at the next verse. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes. Y'all, is it just me? Or does Samuel sound a little ornery? Oh, you, you think so, Jesse? I said all your sons. How many more times I got to say it? All your sons. Do you know what all means? And he says, we ain't sitting down and you ain't going nowhere, daddy, until all the sons come in here. So some servant goes tearing all across the field. And they're going to find this runt. David, verse 12, and he sent and he brought him in. Now he was ruddy and he had beautiful eyes and he was handsome. Now, pause. Some, there's two definitions for ruddy in Hebrew. Some say it means he was red-headed and freckled. I tend to like that one. Translucent skin. Number two, others say he was dirty, disheveled, tanned, and smelled like the pasture. Okay? How one word could potentially mean both of those things, I have no idea. But that's what ruddy means. But the Bible said he had pretty eyes. The point is, this dude, I don't know if you want pretty eyes to be a future king. I don't know if that's the qualification you want. This is not like a king, certainly not like a man of war. This is a runt with a baby face. Think about Bow Wow. Or Jonas' brother. Or yes, indeed, Justin Bieber. Okay? <laughs> Justin Bieber. So this is David. This is David. A runt, pretty-eyed boy. Verse 12. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Verse 13. And from that day, come on, church. From that day on, the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David. And listen to me, David's strength is not going to come from his awesomeness. That's not why God chose him. His strength is going to come from the Spirit of God. And in fact, he's going to be able to be filled with the Spirit of God because he's not full of himself. And God won't take somebody full of himself because when you're full of yourself, you can't be full of his Spirit. And it's when you're not full of yourself, you can become full of his Spirit to be qualified to be who he calls in his kingdom. Now that's 1 Samuel 16. Now let's go to 1 Samuel 17. Which brings us now to one of, y'all, y'all, this is the most famous Bible story. I would, I would call this the, the pop culture miracle of the Bible. And listen, everybody I've talked to who knows the Bible thinks they know the point of this story. Everybody. But listen, there are some deep Bible truths at work here that I think can not only unlock the meaning of this passage, but I think unlock the meaning of life. And in my spirit experience, I'm not trying to be critical. I'm not, I really am not trying to be critical. Very few people really know what's happening in 1 Samuel 17. What's actually taking place. So verse 1. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle. Time out. Who are the Philistines? Modern day language, bad guys. Bad guys. You say, what do you mean? Yeah, they were a group of people still living in the land of Canaan that when God told the Israelites to go take the land of Canaan, they had failed to drive them out. Ironically, we always say, Philistine in our modern day, like we often mean someone who's culturally backward. That's wrong. The Philistines were the strongest, most technologically advanced nation on the earth. They were culturally sophisticated. In fact, they were the first to ever have a civilization to work with metals. This is why even if you don't read the Bible or believe the Bible, we know that David lived at the transition of what we call the Bronze Age to the Iron Age. There's three ages in history. There's the Stone Age... The Paleozoic era goes into the Iron, excuse me, Bronze Age, and then it goes into the Iron Age. We know that David comes onto the scene historically at the transition of the last two ages because the Philistines were the only civilization to ever work with metal. In other words, they had superior weapons. You want to know what the Israelites had? They had wood, they had rocks, and they had slingshots. 
You understand where I'm going with this passage. And you understand why David is showing up at this time. In other words, everybody was intimidated by the Philistines. Everybody was scared out of their shorts. Verse 3. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on one side. And Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. I've been to this place called the Valley of Elah. It's about a mile wide. And it's awesome, awesome to watch. Verse 4. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits in a span. That would make him, in modern terms, nine feet six inches. He is six inches from hitting his forehead on the rim when he walks under a basketball goal. He's nine foot six. He, verse 5, Goliath had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail. Now, that doesn't mean he had a bunch of postcards attached to him from different cities, okay? What that means is he had a weight of a coat that was a metal meshing. And the Bible says the weight of that coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. I got you. I understand. See how many times he keeps bringing up bronze. How many more times can you say bronze in a statement? How many times can you say metal in a statement? What's he trying to say? In other words, he was superior. He's superior in every way to David, the Israelites, the nation of Israel. The shaft, verse 7, of his spear was like a weaver's beam. And he stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and your servants of Psycho Saul? Choose a man for yourselves. And he says, Let him come down to me. And if he's able to fight with me and kill me, we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him... You shall be our servants and serve us. This is what we call, church, representative warfare. Representative warfare is this. One person fights on behalf of the army. If that person wins, that army wins. One person fights on the, uh, behalf of the other army. If that other person wins, that army wins. Verse 16. Every morning and every evening, look what Goliath does for 40 days. Every morning at breakfast, they're eating Wheaties. They're sitting there at their tents. Give me a man that we may fight together. At night, they're at the campsite roasting s'mores, trying to mind their own business at the camp. Give me a man that we may fight. Look at the next verse. When Saul and all Israel heard the words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Look at verse 20. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, Jesse sends ruddy David up to see his brothers in battle with crackers and cheese. I mean, he is a glorified Domino's boy. He's delivering cheese pizza to the front lines of battle for brothers who didn't consider him important enough to be brought in the house the day that the most important prophet of Israel, Samuel, came to the house to anoint the next king. And yet, he is doing what his dad told him to do. His dad told him to go up and give cheese and crackers. By the way, this is why we know David was less than 20. People say, no, he's up there. No. Because the cutoff age to be in the army was 20. So he had to be at no more than 19. I think he's probably 17, 18. But at most, he's 19. He's a teenager. Look at verse 20. And David rose early in the morning. Y'all, that is a miracle. I have a hard time believing sometimes. I mean, I can believe the Immaculate Conception. I can believe the virgin birth. But I cannot believe that a teenager got up early in the morning to do anything. To do anything. When have we seen a teenager get up early in the morning? And the Bible says he got up early in the morning and he left the sheep with a keeper. He finds a sheep keeper, a sheep sitter like any responsible young man would do. And he took the Lunchables from Kroger and he went, look, just like his daddy had commanded. And he's essentially what? He's essentially a teenager making a donut run for his daddy. He runs to the front lines of battle. So he brings the snacks to his seven older brothers who are doing the fighting. 
And to be technical, fighting is probably not the word to use here because their fighting so far consists of yelling insults. Oh, well, well, yeah, you're dumb. Oh, yeah, your mom's a Goliath. You know, things like this. And so they're, they're fighting with words for 40 days. Verse 23, as David talked with them. Oh, I'm going to preach myself happy right here. As David talked with them, behold, the champion. The, I feel this in my soul. The, the, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, come up out of the ranks. And the Philistine spoke the words and the same words as before. And David heard them. I love that. David heard them, but David wouldn't have heard them if he wouldn't have been faithful, even after he was anointed as the king or next king of Israel, to do what his dad called him to do, to take up cheese pizza up to brothers who didn't think he was important enough to be brought in the house the day he was anointed by the prophet, yet with his good attitude and his submission to godly leadership, he heard the giant. He would have never heard it had he not done what his dad had asked him to do. Verse 32, and David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant, my bad self, will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, look at this condescending tone. You're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him. You are but a youth. And he's been a man of war from his youth. In other words, this guy's been fighting David as long as you've been alive. Goliath has socks that are older than you, David. I mean, you, you, you stand no chance. Here we go. Here we go. Verse 34. David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for the father. And by used to, I mean, I did it this morning. <laughs> I left him with a sheep sitter. And when there came a lion and there came a bear and it took a lamb from the flock, I went after him. I struck him. I delivered it out of his mouth. And when he arose against me, I called him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Now, first, a beard? Like, what did bears look like back then? Bearded bears, okay? So David has grabbed bearded bears. He's cut them with his own knife. He's destroyed them when they tried to take the sheep. Verse 37. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to say, David, go and the Lord be with you. Go on with your bad self. In other words, good luck being dead, David. I got you, buddy. Younger brother, good luck. Good luck with that in Goliath. Verse 42, and when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him because he was a youth, right? David's got his freckles and floppy hair and ruddy and handsome in appearance. And verse 43, the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog? My dog that you come out with sticks? Seriously, you sent, you sent out Sheldon Cooper from Big Bang Theory to fight me? Like, what, you think this is a, so you think you can dance competition? I mean, look at this little boy. What's he going to do to me? I mean, he's, he's, he's defying him. And look what happens. The Philistine said to David, Come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, Well, the problem is, Jack, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. He said, This day, not tomorrow, this day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down, and I will cut off your head. I don't think that's bad for a novice trash talker, right? I mean, this is. That's not a, bad, not a bad thing. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistine this day to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth. Oh, watch this, watch this, watch this. That all the earth, audience number one, all the earth will know what? There's a God in Israel. He hears prayers. He helps little runny boys. 
That's number one. Audience number two. And that all of this assembly may know the Lord saves with sword and spear. We notice this. Oh, wow. Did you see that? The audience of this miracle is that the world would know that there is a God who answers prayer. Audience number two is the assembly called the church of all the cowards who are on the sidelines who won't step up to the plate and do what God's called them to do when God's called them to do it. But I'm going to step up to the plate and be who God's called me to be. There's your audiences. So David says very clearly, Saul, this is why I'm here. This is why I'm here. Now notice this. He goes on. When the Philistine arose and came near, drew near to meet David, David ran quickly towards the battle line to meet the Philistine. God, doesn't, God does a lot with, not, with very little. I mean, he really does. Five stones, and he only used one of them. And David put his hand in the bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine in the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and Goliath thought, well, this was the last thing to ever enter my mind. See what I did there? See what I did? And he fell on his face to the ground. Then David ran over and stood over the Philistine and took his own sword. Y'all, David ain't even got a sword. He don't even have his own sword. He grabs the sword out of the sheath of this nine foot six dude grabs the sword, the Bible says, he cut off his head, and when the Philistines saw it, their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines and plundered their camp. Here's the main question. I'm not asking if you've ever heard this story before. I'm asking, what is the main point of this story? What is the main point of this story? Now, I've heard this preached as many times as you have. Here's one I've heard. The bigger they are... Harder they fall. That's a parable. Sounds like an African proverb. That's a parable to find. Or about this one. There's always hope for the underdog. So never stop believing in yourself. Don't stop believing. Hold on to that feeling. Right? I've heard that preached before. Number three. How about if you trust God, God will give you victory over all the giants in your life. Like if you're a lousy football team and you're about to play a superior one on Friday night. Goliath is going to fall. Or you got a lousy job or you got cancer. Or maybe God has appointed you to what? Conquer the giant of mediocrity in your business and he wants to use you to dominate in your workplace. I've heard all these applications. All the applications. Are these the main point of the story? Audience participation. Are these the main point of the story? Ladies and gentlemen, no. Let me teach you something real quick about Bible interpretation. This is a mistake most often made. The story of David is not David, you. The story of David is David, Jesus, you. It's not I read David, enter my life into the experience of David. It's no. We don't skip the middleman. You don't skip the middleman, Jesus. Why? We'll get to what it means for the giants in your life. But first and foremost, the Bible you hold is not a book about you. And it's not a book about David. It's a book about Jesus and Jesus alone. All scripture points to Jesus. Listen, the Bible is not a collection of heroes of their examples who you should emulate. It's a book about the stories of a Savior you're supposed to adore. So it's not about putting our faith in men who are very weak and faith in women who are very weak apart from God. It's to cause us to fall in love with Jesus. Jesus was the small, unassuming shepherd boy who fought the real giant. What was that? Satan. That was sin. That was our curse of death. As our representative on our behalf, while we stood on the sidelines like cowards, not for 40 days, but some of us 40 years, others of us 45 years or 55 years, and doing nothing to help him. And as our representative, he lived 
live the life we were supposed to live. He died in our place and died the death that we were supposed and condemned to die. And just like David, he was opposed by all his brothers. And he was abundant by everyone at the moment of battle called Golgotha. And he walked out on that field all alone. And he conquered the giant of sin, Satan, and death all by himself. And now we as his brothers, we as his sisters, what do we do? We share in his victory. We share in his plunder even though we didn't lift a finger to help him. So it's David, Jesus. Now we can see what it means for you. Now we can see what it means for us. The real giant in our life, which is alienation from God. The penalty we had for sin. Jesus came. And that's something Jesus knocked out for us all on his own. On the field of battle. Now we can understand what it means for our lives. So look, I want to give you a couple principles of what it means for our life. Number one, because Jesus has taken out the real giant in my life, I can bravely face all the lesser giants. Because Jesus took out the real giant called sin, I can, I can trust him to face all the lesser giants. I'm going to give you a couple subpoints under number one. Letter A, if you're taking notes, in Christ, I don't have to be afraid of death. In Christ, I don't have to be afraid of death. If cancer comes, and ultimately for some of you, it's already come. Ultimately, I don't have to be afraid of cancer. I don't have to be afraid of death. Because even if it kills me, Jesus has taken the sting out of death. And I can say like Paul, Philippians 1.21, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Y'all, listen to me. Do we really believe that word? For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Look, church, look. When you gain in death what was the object of your affection in life, dying is gain. When you gain in dying what you loved while living, death can never be a loss. Death can only be an increase. Death can only be gaining. You're gaining Jesus. You get him. David wrote it this way. Yay, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Don't you love that? Hey, listen. God says the only thing we'll ever walk through is the valley of the shadow of death. It didn't say we'd walk through the valley of death. All you'll ever walk through, all I'll ever walk through is the valley of the shadow of death. You say, what's the shadow of death? Glad you asked. I told you this story before, but if you stick around this church, I'll probably do it another hundred times before I die. True story. Twelve-year-old girl, mom dies unexpectedly, prematurely. Devastated. Devastated. Goes to the funeral. On her way home from the funeral to the graveside, from the funeral to the graveside, she's with her daddy. She's overcome with grief and overwhelmed with grief. They're driving down the fast lane of the interstate. It's a double lane. There's a slow lane on the right side. Although she's overwhelmed with emotion, she starts thinking about what the preacher said at the, gra- at the uh, funeral. And the preacher read Psalm 23, and he said something like, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. It makes me lie down in the green pastures. It restores my soul. It leads me beside still waters. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. Rod and, rod and stuff comfort me. And you sit and prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. Surely goodness and mercy follow me all the days of my life, and I dwell in the the house of God forever. And, and so she's hearing this guy see it. And so she says to her dad, she said, Dad, what, um, what does it mean to go through the valley of the shadow of death? And her dad was kind of stunned. He, he paused for a minute. And just then, a tractor trailer came in the right slow lane because the way that the sun was shining was on the opposite side of the truck. So the shadow of the truck went over the top of the vehicle in which they traveled. And soon as it did, the shadow came across the car. He turned to his daughter and he said, Sweetheart, if you had to choose... Would you rather get hit by the front of that tractor trailer? Or would you rather get hit by the shadow of that tractor trailer? And she said, of course, I'd rather get hit by the shadow of that tractor trailer. And he said, listen, baby, 
Jesus got hit by the front end of that 18-wheeler so that your mom's death, all she would ever experience, is the shadow of that tractor-trailer. I'm here to tell you, I don't care what death you die, you're never going to face the front end of that 18-wheeler because Jesus went to a cross and he stood in front of that 18-wheeler and he was demolished and he was clobbered and he got back out, out of the grave again so that all that ever touches you, believer, is a shadow of that death. It's not the death itself. It's not the alienation from God. It's not the separation from God. It's the shadow of that death. In Christ, I don't have to be afraid of death. Number two, in Christ, I don't have to be afraid of the future flying out of control. I don't have to be afraid of the future flying out of control. What do you mean? If you lose your job, you got something more secure than money to hang on to. What is that? That God promises to care for you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. Y'all, I read back through Psalm, uh, the shepherd's psalm again. Here's what's amazing. You know the psalm. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. It's amazing because the first four verses, every time David calls God, he refers to him as he. He, 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 he. He gets to the valley of the shadow of death in 4a, and from 4b on, he never says God is he anymore. He said you, 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 because it's the valley of the shadow of death that takes the second-hand knowledge of God and makes it first-hand intimacy. It's not until you get to the valley of the shadow of death where he becomes mine, where he becomes you, where he is not far off and distant. He becomes personal in my own life. And notice this, in the actual text itself, what God needs to do in you Always matters more than what you think he wants to do through you. Always. What he wants to do in you in the Rocky Mountain Divide is so much more important than what you think that he wants to do through your hands in the days to come. You are his dwelling place. Again, David said, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He lakes me, lie down in green pastures. He prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Y'all, do we believe that or not? How about that? God prepares a five-course meal in the middle of your battle with bullets flying overhead. I'm serious, y'all. I'm just at a place in my life. Am I going to believe God's word or not believe God's word? Is this poetic language or is it real language? God says, in the midst of my battles, I don't care where you're at, whatever battle you're in, if you're in the shadow of the Almighty, you can set your tail down right in the middle of the battle. God puts out a big five course feast and bullets are flying over your head and surely goodness and mercy shall follow you all the days of your life I'll never be abandoned I'll never be forsaken I will never be alone so if I lose my job it's not the end of the world why because you know what the real end of the world is the real end of the world is if you were separated from God for eternity so since Jesus came and took care of the real end of the world you can surely trust him to take care of whatever the end of the world you think you're facing now if the real end of the world is paid for through Jesus' blood do you realize that any lesser giant you face he will take care of he will take care of yes praise God he will take care of What would, here we go, what would feel like the end of the world to you? Losing a son? God forbid losing a child? Losing your spouse? Getting cancer? I know a lot of people in our church, they say, losing a relationship. I'll never go back into a relationship, Pastor Craig, because I hurt. I trusted and I'm hurt again. Can I tell you some good news? In Christ, you can go right back into a relationship because even if you get hurt again, that won't be the end of the world because Christ took into himself the real end of the world for you. He took on your sin. He overcame sin, death, hell, and the grave. And yet now he's promised victory. Christ, who gives me true life, it's a life that joblessness can't take. 
And it's a life that my friends can't mess up. And it's a life that cancer can't kill. It's true life. It's life in Jesus. So yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Yea, though I walk through the valley of joblessness. Yea, though I walk through the valley of poor health. Yea, though I walk through the valley of a bad marriage. I won't be afraid. Why? Because thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. They comfort me. They comfort me. Better see. In Christ, I don't have to fear the disapproval of others. Because I have the absolute approval of the only one that really matters. Yeah, I don't have to fear the approval of others, disapproval of others. Because in Christ, the only one apt to judge your life is right now seated next to the Father. And he already called you loved. So who cares what anyone else says? He's the only one qualified to tell and deem value. He's the only one. He's the only one that died. And he today deems you as being worthy, loved, graced. For most of my life, I, I was captive to what other people thought about me. But you know what? In Christ, even though people reject me, I have the absolute approval of the only one whose approval matters. Sometimes even as I, yo, this is embarrassing to say. Sometimes even as I preach, I catch myself. Now, it's partially your fault, partially mine. Some of you are good sermon listeners. You're like, yeah, amen. Yeah. See you looking down at your car, back up. Some of y'all look as sour as all get out. I'm like, what in the world is going on? I'm, I'm in the middle of my sermon thinking, dear God, I don't think I should ever preach again. I mean, they're serious and somber. Are we in a funeral or a celebration of resurrection? Like, you know, I'm not, what in the world is going on, right? I, I was in a church previous to this. It was a difficult place. And, whoo, it was difficult at times preaching. Everybody, I mean, we've been trained in the Western world to evaluate sermons rather than let God speak to us, right? So we come in evaluating them about how they can minister to anybody else and who we can text and who we can get Facebook so they can watch it because the message is for them. It certainly ain't for me. You know, I mean, I'm gathered here. God brought me here, but it ain't for me. It's for somebody else. And, and so this is what we do in the Western world, right? And so we look at it from that kind of lens. Well, I was in a church, very difficult. And you know what? One day, one Sunday, I just saw it's almost like Jesus was sitting right here. And he's like, hey, hey, angels, come here real quick. Come here, come here, come here. Moscow boy, that Moscow boy's preaching again. Woo, watch this, watch this. And they're looking over the bowels of heaven. They're looking and saying, woo, proud of you, boy. And I'm like, go on with your bored face, all right? Go on with your bored face. I'll keep on preaching like God cares and God approves and God loves. Why? I'm just telling you, you've got the approval of the only one whose opinion matters. Listen, listen, look, look, look. This is when you can really have courage to be vulnerable. You know why people can't be vulnerable? I can't be vulnerable with you when my Lord is still your approval. But when I have my Lord as my Lord, I'll be vulnerable because your admiration is not my life. Jesus is my life. So I don't need to pose for you. I don't need to act a certain way for you because your approval is not my life. See, I will, I will impress people with my strengths, but I will impact people with my weaknesses. Another way I could say that is I impress people with my strengths, but I connect with people. Through my vulnerability, my weaknesses, my challenges. So real courage, church, is not the assurance that everything's going to go smoothly or everyone's going to like you or you're going to discover your inward awesomeness. Woo, I'm a rainbow. Whoa, I'm a snowflake. I'm a skittle. No. It, it's not that you'll have no difficulties. Real courage, look, real courage is knowing you serve a God that's better than life and larger than death. And he said, my goodness and mercy shall follow you. Now look, I want to hone in for a moment. Most of us preach David out of the text that we find in 1 Samuel 
that is repeated in Acts. David, a man after God's own heart. David. Now, I can understand 1 Samuel text calling him a man after God's own heart because he hadn't killed a man named Uriah and slept with her wife. But now, post that, now I'm thinking Acts, we're going to change our title, Mr. David. That's not what Luke does, though, in Acts 13. Look what Luke does in Acts 13. He clearly communicates that after removing Saul, he made David, God their king. God testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. Now look, here we are in 2019 talking about we want to be men and women after God's own heart. But if you really look at the Hebrew, the Hebrew has two meanings. In the original language, if you look at the text, it literally says God sought for himself a man according to his own heart. Now, now, what does that mean? God sought for a man according to his own heart. Hold on a second. First of all, that means according to what was in God's heart, he chose someone. According to what was in the heart of God, God picked somebody. Now, that meaning speaks to first about what was in God's heart, not what was in David's heart. What was in his heart. Now that changes everything. It'll tell you something about the nature of God. So there's two meanings. You ready? Meaning number one is, man after God's own heart, is he tells us that God had a place for David in his heart. Did you know that? God had a place in his heart for David. Number two, it means David had a place in his heart for God. So the Bible says God went looking for David. Now, now when it says that, God went looking for David, that's only for your benefit on this time of eternity. It doesn't mean like God's like... Man, I can't seem to find him. He's opened up Instagram. He's like, where's David today? You know, he ain't posted any stories. Hebrews makes it really clear that God, here it is, always had a place in his heart for David before David was born. God had a place in his heart for David. Before David was ever designed, before he was ever created, God had a place for David. Let me, let me say it like this. This is the best way I know to say it. My wife and I, Meredith, we have three offspring in our home. We have three children. We have Jonathan Knox, JK, nine years old. We have Marley Ann, I call her Marley Moo, six years old. We have Harper G, Harper Grace. Many of you know her story. She's two years old, going on 20. Now listen, my wife and I started dating, even got married. We didn't know how many kids we were going to have. I mean, we, really didn't. we didn't send notes to one another in high school saying we're going to have three kids. We never did that. But you know what's amazing? Some of you parents are going to know what I'm talking about right now. When we had Knox, maybe it's because he was a preemie. But I was so overwhelmed. I was so overwhelmed. January 13, 2000, I was absolutely smitten and overwhelmed. Like we had Knox. He was a preemie. He was in the hospital for a bit. But the next morning he had to go down to the NICU and he was under the heating lamp. And when I walked down, I'd already had the boy. You know, we already had the boy for 12, 14 hours. But it's the first time I saw his name on the outside of the door. And it said Mosgrove. It said Mosgrove. And I walked into that room and I looked over that boy. And that heating lamp was on him. That little five pound, two ounce 19 and a quarter inch boy, and I was like, what is happening? What is happening right now? Like, my God, what's happening? Like, oh! I mean, my heart was like, I mean, I was obsessed. I was overwhelmed. I mean, you try to walk up in that hospital and hurt my boy that day, I would have killed you. I would have killed your mom. I would have killed your cousins. I would have killed your distant relatives. I would have killed anybody that followed you on Instagram. I'll cut you. You touch that boy, you're dead. You do something to that five pound, you know what I'm talking about, right? Parents, you know what I'm talking about. I had never felt that way before. Y'all listen, listen. When you talk about parenting, it's not love by choice. 
I had felt love, but I had to choose Meredith. And I had to keep choosing her every day. That's the type of marital love. I had to keep choosing and keep choosing and keep choosing. For Knox, I didn't know there was this space in my heart already prepared by God for that young boy. I had no idea up to that point in my life there was a place in my heart. But here's what happened. I thought to myself, what am I going to do? I told my wife. Y'all call it crazy. Call it what it is. I went to my wife and I said, I already got my favorite. We can have another one. First come, first serve. I'm sorry. JK, Jonathan Knox, he's my favorite. I'm seriously thinking, like, how am I going to love another child? Mary said, hey, Craig, let's have more kids. And I'm like, I like the process of that for sure. But, you know, the reality, call it your boy. I'm sorry, single guys. I, 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 I'm like, the reality of that is I'm, I'm nervous. I'm scared about this. Like, what's going to happen? I told her, I said, babe, I promise you, if we have another baby, it's awesome. I just got my favorite. Then on August of 2012, in Erlinger Hospital, we had Marley Ann Mossgrove. And I'm like, how in the world? I got two favorites. It was almost like all of my heart was for Knox. And then all of my heart was for Marley. And then a couple years later, you know the story, Harper G came along. And all of my heart was for Knox, and all of my heart was for Marley, and all of my heart was for Harper. All I can tell you is it's like these three babies already had a place in my heart before my heart was formed. These babies were reserved. They were there from the beginning. Listen to me, they were there, though I did not know it, they were there. That is my small attempt at at describing to you the capacity of your heavenly Father. Listen, already, already and always will you have a special place in the heart of your Father. Did you know that? You have a special place in the heart of God. No one else can take it. Your mama can't take it. Your brother can't take it. Your neighbor can't take it. God has a special place in his heart for you. And it's clear in the text that God had a special place in his heart for David. And God's choosing of David had more to do with what was in his heart, God's heart, than it ever had to do with what was in David's heart. And God's heart is towards you today. You say, P. Craig, I don't believe in God. Too bad. Doesn't change the fact that God's got a place in his heart for you. Can't change that. Never, you run from it all you want, but it'll still always be there. He has a place in his heart for you, he can't deny that. I think of scriptures like this, 1 Timothy 2, 4. God's got a place in his heart for all people to be saved. He's got every single 7.2 billion places in his heart for every person on the globe to be found in his heart. The Bible says that God's thoughts towards you outnumber the sand on the seashore. Go on and try it. Go out there on the beach and try to start counting. One cubic foot of sand is 1.8 billion grains of sand. And God said, David said, when I consider your thoughts towards me, they're more numerous than the sand on the sea. Sure. Why are you always on God's mind? You're always on God's mind because you are in His heart. You have a place in His heart. Doesn't matter what those babies do. Y'all, it don't matter what my babies do. It doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. My heart is forever reserved for Knox, Marley, and Harper. Forever. No matter what you do. When I was writing this message, I'm like, I I don't know how to explain. Parents know. I don't know how to explain it to you. I can't turn it off. I don't have a choice to put on the light or off the light. It is always on. 
my heart is always have a place for those babies. I told my son, son, I'll come visit you in jail. I promise 100% I'll be there. I will pay your bail. I will break the bank paying your bail. I, I'm, nothing you can, it's not like, oh, you hurt me. 78th time. Jesus said 77. So no place in my heart for you anymore. No, no, no. Nothing you can do. Nothing you can do, son. Nothing you can do, daughters. Nothing. I will always have a place in my heart for you. Can I tell you, you always have a place in God's heart. You got to let that sink in. You have a place in his heart. Woo! That'll frame a bad day for you, won't it? God's always thinking about me. Because I have a place in his heart. It says in Luke 13, Jesus went into the triumphal entry. He was going into Jerusalem to die for her people. And he comes up over Bethany and he gets on top of the Mount of Olives and he comes to the overlook and he says, time out, guys. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. By the way, the Greek, we don't know if Jesus said Jerusalem twice, but it's a compassion term. It's a splachna. It's an emotion so deep in Jesus that the only way the writers could portray it is saying it twice. Maybe he did say it twice. The city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wombs, or her wings and you were not willing. That sounds like a lovesick parent whose kids don't want to spend time with them. How often I would have gathered. You're in my heart. I want to save you. I want to protect you. I want to hold you. We are here today under a very clear premise. And it's very, very strong, but very, very clear that no matter what, God loves you. He loves you. Let's say it this way. God loves really bad people, horrible people. You say, how do you know that? Because he loves me. And he keeps loving me. And he won't stop loving me. God loves bad people. Why? Oh, simple. He has a place in their heart. Why? Because you're his children. His children. So today, as we talk about David, right? We're not talking about an elite person. I can prove that through his resume. Oh, I want to be a man or woman after God's own heart. And we make we think that's like super Christian. Let's think of David for a minute. His resume, David. Well, first of all, David is a frustrated artist who has tons of challenges. He got really, really high highs, really, really depressive lows. Kind of almost seems a little bit bipolar. Euphoric moments, really low moments. David's passionate, that's for sure. Definitely got a problem with the ladies. Definitely got a problem with the ladies. Even when he's married, David ends up problem with the ladies. He ends up liking one woman so much that he uh, kills her husband and sleeps with her. Oh, David. He's a liar. Obviously a cheater. Got a little bit of a manipulator in him. David, not a great dad. All oh, grandkids turned out pretty good, but what he did with his immediate kids, not, not really much to write about. God was gracious with David. Let's see. David was a good king. He was a real bad king. David was a very selfish king, and then he was a selfless king. David fought many battles. Some he just didn't want to fight, so he said, nope, not going to go fight it. David served his own wisdom, his own desires, his own appetites. David? Here we are 3,000 years later saying, Woo, David, I'm a man after God's own. We talking about we want to be Davids. I want to be a David. I want to be a 
woman after the heart of God, a man after the heart of God. You know where that starts? Yeah, I know where it starts, Pastor Greg. It starts with me and growth phases, really leaning in. It's being dedicated, committed, and I'm attending church and reading my Bible and not cussing and not hanging out with people who drink and, and doing all that God's called me to do. It doesn't start with that. You know where it starts with? It starts with me understanding that no matter where I come from in life and no matter where I find myself in life, that God has a place from all eternity that's in his heart that is always towards me, that wants to love me, graciously give all things to me, draw me to himself. And so why? Because he came out and found you in the pasture when you were lost and all of your other brothers were the chosen ones and all the ones around you are better than you and fit the part. And yet God, through Jesus Christ, came and got you. No one thinks David's going to amount to anything. God uses David as an example. It's a case study in scripture of who God is and how he functions. How he calls. And now in the new covenant, the new dispensation, we're all Davids because God has come once and for all, sacrificing once and for all. We're all Davids that God has rescued. We're all God's children. Y'all, when my daughter comes in the, in the end of the day, y'all parents know what I'm talking about. I don't know how to stop myself. I'm just like, oh, give me your face. I want to squeeze your face off. I mean, I don't, I, baby, I'm going to kiss you on the lips till you're 35. I'm just, <sighs> I mean, I just, Someone told me after the first gathering, you'll want to kill them and, 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 and teenagers, and then it comes back when you're about 25. I know, maybe I want to kill them, but I want to kill them because I do love them. And so I just grab Marley, and I, I lift her up. I'm like, baby, put your head right there on my shoulder. Wrap your legs around me. Squeeze me tight. I mean, I just I can't get enough of her. I'm like, you're always going to hold my hand, Marley. And she's like, well, Dad, probably not. I'm like, don't say that. Don't say that. That's... Can, can I hold you, honey? No, you're 45 pounds, can I carry you? You need someone to carry you. You're six years old. You know? Me carrying my nine-year-old into the mall, you know, to Knox. That's exactly what God does with you. He'll carry you until you take your last breath. Why? You got a place in his heart. You got a place in his heart. He can't deny it. The holiest moment I had on vacation a couple weeks ago. I got there late. I preached here and went to Hilton Head and grabbed my family and, or joined my family and went down to the pool one night. And my son and daughter were with me. And I went swimming with them late. And I was walking back and I was in front of them. They were like ducklings following the duck. And Marley proceeded from the back. She said, Daddy, I'm just so glad you're here. Vacation is just not the same without you. And Knox said, yeah, Dad, we missed you. And I've only been gone a day. He said, man, just vacation's not the same without you being here. We're just so glad you're here. And of course, I didn't turn around because the tears were flowing. I just kept walking towards the room. That's what Jesus says about you. It's just not the same until you're, you're in relationship with me. Whew. Number two. I can trust God to fight my lesser battles for me too. Come on up, Maddie. I'm going to close. I want to ask you a question. Just a moment. Because God fought the real giant, I can trust him to fight my lesser battles too. You know what a giant is? A giant is anything in your life that prohibits the advance of the will of God in your life. So if it's, he, he, you know, Satan will do it with your marriage. Sometimes he'll do it with your kids. He'll do it in your job. Sometimes even in your health. You say, Craig, how do you overcome the giants that Satan uses? How do you overcome them? You, 
You, like David, run confidently towards them, trusting that God will fight for you. Y'all, listen. Christianity and the Christian life is not just learning how to endure defeat well. Yes, you got to learn how to suffer well. But it's also seeing the power of God and His salvation come into the spheres of your life to give you victory. Let David teach us again. It's an all-David message today. Psalm 27, 13. For I am confident of this. What? I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. This is not just I will see the goodness in death. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. I thought about this with my kids' salvation this week. Lord, unbreak and unleash goodness over my kids. Lord, draw them to you. When you draw them in salvation, let goodness be broken over their life. I think of it. You know what? I pray for the success of this church. I hope you pray for the success of this church. You know what? God could cause this church to fail. He'd still be God. I'd still be his son. God could use it. God could do it. God could. We wouldn't question him. He can do whatever he wants to do. But I'm going to tell you, what I'm praying is for an outbreaking of his goodness over our church. That we would see middle school, high school, college students come to know Jesus Christ. That people in the twilight years of their life would find a caring community who would love and care for them so that they can toward the next generation. I'm believing that God would unleash His goodness in our church and in the families of our church. That we would see marriages restored. That we would see families healed and whole. That we would see our facility to be a place and a community in which the grace and the acceptance and the love of God would touch people's heart. That we could dream again. That God, we would plant churches. That Lord, we would be a congregation that would see the goodness of God broke out among us. Listen, you can pray even over victory over cancer if you got cancer and you can keep serving God. Say, God, heal my cancer so I can keep serving you so I can keep blessing other people now he may have a different plan but you know what you can ask him for the outbreak of goodness in your life you can believe for the outbreak of goodness it's perfectly fine for you to ask God to bless your career why so that you can use your career to continue to what give prosperity to further God's plan you should be asking God to move unconditionally and powerfully in the lives of your friends and expecting him to do it and look church when he doesn't do what you think he should do, you can trust that it has nothing to do with him not caring or him forgetting you because he's already taken out the bigger giant. Then you can't question. You can't question. Giants, where do you need to see the kingdom of God advance in your life? Don't look at the size of the giant. Look at the graciousness of our God. Listen, y'all, giants are no problem to God. They never have been. The giant that he can't defeat is the unbelief right here. He won't overcome that one. You do. You do. Which brings me to the last question. If you have a Bible, would you turn there with me? 1 Samuel 16, 13. I just want you to see it in the text. Where do you learn that kind of courage, Craig? Where do you learn the courage to hear God and act? Look at 1 Samuel 16 and 13. The Spirit of God rushed on David. Now, if you look at your Bible, look at right after verse 13. In my Bible, there's a little white space. There's a demarcation. And then chapter 14 goes down. It's a new section. And in chapter 14, look what happens. It changes the subject. The focus goes back to Saul. David goes back to the pastor. Y'all, pause real quick. What was that like for David? Samuel, the most important prophet in Israel, comes and anoints you, pours oil in your head, says, God has chosen you. You feel it run down your hair and neck. The Spirit of God rushes on you. And where do you go the next morning? You go into an elite king training program? You go down to the Hosanna Republic and get crowns and robes? I said Hosanna Republic, okay. No. 
back to the desert for seven years. I went to seminary. I went to Bible school. They taught me how to exegete aorist tense verbs. They taught me how to exegete present imperative verbs. They did not teach me how to exegete white spaces. And I'm going to tell you, white space is the most difficult thing in the Bible to exegete because the white space of your life is when you think God ought to be doing something, but he ain't. That's the white space. Seven years. Some of you, it's been more than seven. It could be 17 or seven months or I don't know how long it is. He says, nope, back to the pastor. God, did you forget? Did you forget about me, God? No, 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 I didn't forget about you. I used the pastor to prepare my King David. Only in the pastor can God build into you skill and character and patience and love. It's easy to trust God when he does what we want, but it's the other times we grow. So Chuck Swindoll wrote a book called The Story of David. Oh, it's beautiful. He said there's three things that characterize David's life. That's what I'll give you. He said, number one, obscurity. Nobody knew David was out there. Let me tell you, God hides kings in cheap coats. And he hides deliverers in bulrushes on the Nile River. And he hides messiahs in carpenter shops in Nazareth. He knows where you are. He hadn't lost his GPS tracker. Number two, monotony. Monotony. Hey, David, what'd you do today? I watched the sheep. They went from here to there and there to here. What else? Oh, I worked with this slingshot a little bit. You wouldn't believe this. I can knock an apple off that tree at 100 yards. You want to see? No, nah, don't really care, David. Anything else? Well, I got so bored, I started playing the harp. I wrote this cool song. It's called the 23rd Psalm. You want to hear it? No, nah, don't really want to hear a, a song written by a poor, no-name, blue-collar worker. Not particularly. What else? Well, last week, I attacked a bear. You know, I, I, the bear came and attacked a sheep, and I grabbed its beard, and I killed it with my knife. Its beard, David, does the bear have a beard? Yeah, it has a beard, okay. Can you prove it, David? Nope, can't prove it. Monotony. Monotony. But here's the third word. Reality. And the reality was that even though no one paid any attention to David, and even though David's life was monotonous, the master builder was shaping him. With the slingshot, oh, that might come in handy in a couple years on the Valley of Elah. With the harp, David would write the most famous psalm that has comforted more Christians at the death and the funeral of loved ones than anyone in all of history. David, in the midst of the pasture, God was uh, uh, forging and, and developing David's courage. And in the pasture, God was uh, teaching him how to learn and how he should learn forgiveness and, and how he should learn patience. He learned humility. Like how prideful can you be when you're cleaning up sheep poop every day? David never forgot where he came from. DP, come on band. This is how God works in your life. Hey mom, what'd you do today? Change diapers. Do they appreciate it? They write you, they write you a letter before crib time. Did they rise up and call you blessed mama? Why do you do it? Oh, Colossians 3.23 said, whatever you do, you do it all for the glory of the Lord. Hey, teacher, what'd you do today? I taught some kids some long division with remainders. Wow, that's awesome. That kids appreciate that? No, one kid tried to flush his math book down the toilet. Monotony. Hey, business professional, uh, what'd you do? Ah, settled some accounts. Hey, study student, what'd you do? I studied some lame calculus and history that I'll never, ever use ever in my life. Obscurity, monotony. But let me tell you something. With God, every single thing you do can be used 
no accidents, no coincidence. So don't despise the suffering. Don't despise the pastor. He said, let this mind be in you, which is in Christ Jesus. What? God exalted him because he became obedient to death. He said, let this mind be in you. You know what that means? God not only exalted Jesus, guess who God wants to exalt? You. Because he said, let this mind be in you. You want God to exalt you? You want God to use your life? Let me tell you how you do it. You want to be filled like the Spirit of God filled David? The way up is the way down. God doesn't fill you with His Spirit when you're on the throne, but in the pasture when you learn servanthood, humility, and patience, and love, and trust. So don't waste your white space. Don't waste your, between verse 13 and 14, don't waste your pasture. Because David could have never become David had David not had the pasture. Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you would like more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org.